today, we continue in 1 Peter, and we come to this section that deals with the Christian and government. So, very relevant passage for us today. Let's uh, read it together. Why don't you follow along as I read, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice or for evil, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. And God, we thank you that your word touches on the very aspects of life that we are living in. And today as we consider your word and what it means for us as Christians to live in this fallen world and to live as those who are in submission to the government, God, I pray that you would give us insight and understanding as well as the ability to apply your word to our lives. We love you. We thank you, God, for this time together. I thank you for everybody who is here in the room and and those who are out in the courtyard and those who are joining us online. God, we pray just your blessing today upon the teaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You could argue that the biblical story is an authority story. It really starts with the rebellion against authority there in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit. And from there, it marches to this moment that is coming in history where the Bible tells us that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. But it's all about authority. And praise God, we know that the ultimate authority, Jesus, is going to win. Can I get an amen to that? But that's not the world that we find ourselves living in right now. We live in a world full of conflict, where the forces of light and the forces of darkness are in conflict with one another. We live in a three-dimensional realm where there are three kingdoms that are always intersecting in our lives. There is the kingdom that is to come, the kingdom that we're waiting for, the kingdom of Jesus. There's the kingdom of the king who is reigning right now in our hearts that we are yielding ourselves to. And then there is the kingdom of this world. And we're living in the intersection of those three kingdoms. How do we do that? Well, we began to look at this last week. If you were here last week, we saw that Peter gave us three directives for living in a fallen world. The first is that we were to live like sojourners, realizing that this world is in our home. 
And then he said that we were to fight like soldiers, remembering that we are always in a battle, that there's a battle going on for, you know, just control over the turf of our hearts, control over our souls. We looked at last week, verses 11 and 12. But then the third directive that he gave us is that we were to behave like representatives of Jesus Christ, that every single Christian has been given this calling really by God, this title, is that we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And it's this idea of being representatives of Jesus that Peter continues his thought now in verses 13, where he talks about how we are to live in submission to the government. And we're going to look at this in four uh, ways today. We want to talk about, first of all, four aspects of uh, consider this calling. We want to, first of all, consider the principle itself, the principle of submission. What does it mean? Secondly, we want to talk about the purpose of submission. Uh, why should we do it? Why should we seek to live in submission to the government? Third, we want to talk about the particulars. Who are we to submit to and when do we submit? And is there ever reasons where we don't submit? Is there ever room and a place for civil disobedience? And then finally, we're going to talk about the practice of submission. Let's begin with the principle. We'll look at this in a, in a broad way. The word submit that he uses here in verse 13 is the Greek word hupotasso, which means to arrange in an orderly fashion a group of soldiers under their ranking officer. So we know right here that this is a military term. And it's used in a military way, but there are ways in Scripture or times in Scripture when it's not used in a military sense, and this is one of them. It speaks of a voluntary cooperation or even helping someone carry a load. So in other words, what Peter is saying here is that you and I, as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, are never to be known as subversive troublemakers, but as model citizens. That we are helping carry the load of morality and care for others in our culture. Our city should see us as a blessing and a help and not a hindrance. Now, it's interesting, Paul also spoke of this subject in Romans chapter 13. Let me read it to you. It'll be on the screen. He says, let every soul be subject to governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Now, Paul is telling us here that it is God, he's the one who puts people in power. Even when we might consider the person that has been put in power is the wrong person or the wrong choice. The thing we need to understand is that with God, his appointment is not random. There is always a choice. There is always a plan. And his plan might have something to do with what he's wanting to do in his church and through his church. It no doubt has to do with his overall plan of Bible prophecy. 
So knowing that, for me personally, I never get real emotionally concerned or worked up about elections. I always vote, I always pray, and I always have my opinion of who I think is the best choice in an election. But I rest in this, that no matter who is in office, I know that God is in control, that he is still on the throne. Yeah, you can clap to that. So when the person who I might think is the wrong choice gets elected into some office, this is what I do personally. I step back to ponder and to pray. I want to seek the face of God. I want to ask the Lord, Lord, what are you doing right now? And how does this pertain? What are you seeking to do right now in the life of your church? When I look at somebody that goes into some office and I see that their policy goes against the Bible and goes against, you know, God's heart on many things. And I even see that in some ways that it could get even harder for us as the body of Christ and followers of Christ. I ask God, Lord, what are you seeking to do right now in your church? Is this a purging? Is this a wake up call? How does this relate to your overall plan? And what is it going to look like for us to now live in light of your word to submit to this form of government? Now, in our culture, we wrestle with when we read this, hey, we're to submit to the government. It's like, which one, right? Because we have a governor, we have a president, we have the Supreme Court, we have our local officials. And as we've seen in this past year, oftentimes they don't all agree, right? But in the first century Roman culture, there was only one choice. It was Rome. Rome was in power, and the government of Rome was oppressive. There was no free speech in Rome. It was, in Rome, it was a autocracy. There was no free speech. The king, Caesar, made the rules, and everybody had to abide by them. It was a culture in which slavery was rampant. Historians tell us that there was three slaves for every one free person, which brought this incredible tension into the Roman Empire. And the government officials in both Rome as well as in Israel were known to be corrupt. And the system of taxes in the Roman Empire was heavy, It was arbitrary, it could be, in other words, just made up randomly, and it was incredibly unfair. And then to cap that all off, you had Nero, who was in charge, who was an absolute lunatic, a madman, a very evil man, one of the worst leaders and most oppressive leaders in the history of the world. But here's what's interesting. It was into that society... And that culture, that world, that Jesus was born. It was into that culture that Jesus was ministering in. And he comes into this world and he begins his ministry. And all of his leaders, all of his followers were hoping that he was going to finally, that this was the Messiah who was going to overthrow Roman oppression, that was going to help them escape the yoke of Roman oppression. But Jesus didn't do that. In fact, he never picketed. He never told his followers to make a protracted march on Rome or Jerusalem and protest their cruel government. He didn't do that. 
He never started an insurrection. He never tried to start a culture war at all. In fact, there was one time when someone asked him, hey, is it right, is it lawful, is it the right thing to pay taxes to Caesar? Remember his response? He says, hey, let me have a coin. They gave him a coin. He goes, whose picture's on the coin? And they said, Caesar. And he said, okay, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. It was an amazing answer because this is what he was saying. Hey, this money, yeah, Rome's in power. Caesar's in power right now. His image is on the coin, but whose image is on you? You see, the Bible says that we've all been created in the image of God. God has created us in his own image. And so Jesus was saying, hey, give to Rome what belongs to Rome, but you give you, your heart, your life, you give yourself to God. So this is something that we always want to keep kind of in the forefront of our minds as it relates to this debate of how believers are to respond to authority. How are we to be the representatives that God wants us to be in this world? Well, Jesus, he was the perfect representative, and there were three things that were always on his mind. Three things that he was always concerned about. The Father's will, his Father's glory, and the souls of men and women. The eternity, the eternal destiny of people that he was interacting with. And so those three things were at the heart of everything that Jesus did. Now, I don't want you to miss this. You see, this is the starting place for us. In this conversation about submitting to authority, we need to understand that our call to submit in every situation, and we're going to continue this thought next week in talking about in interpersonal relationships and in the workplace. And then the week after that, we're going to be talking about in marriage. What does that look like for husbands and wives to submit to one another? But you know where it starts? It starts with us personally being submitted to Jesus. Each one of us in our lives being submitted to him being submitted to his word, recognizing that he is Lord. In fact, I love the way Peter puts it in verse 16 when he says, we're free in Christ, but we are willing slaves of God. So here's what Peter's wanting us to see, and Paul wants us to see, first of all, is when it comes to government leaders, I realize that the the Lord is the one who has put this person or this government in place for a reason, and even when it may not make sense to me, or even when I find myself going, hey, I, can't, I don't think I can trust this government, but I can trust Jesus. And so I'm going to rest in that. And here's another thing I don't want you to miss. I don't think there's any coincidence here that Peter, who in chapter 1 tells us, hey, rejoice in your trials. That's what he tells us in, in chapter 1. We looked at that. Rejoice in your trials because you know God is using them to do something in you. He's working through those trials to make you more like Jesus. So the same guy who told us in chapter 1 to rejoice in our trials is the same guy who tells us in chapter 2 to submit to the government. What's the connection? The government was a part of their trial. It was a big part of their trial. Nero was having Christians arrested and killed fed the lions in the Colosseum, or made sport for the gladiators. And so Peter here is instructing us, hey, when you're in a trial, don't try to get out of it, but trust the Lord to take you through it. 
Because that's how you're going to grow. But oftentimes, don't, our, our thing is we, we want to get out of it, right? We want to run from it. We want to fight against it. And Peter says, don't do that. And in this case, with these Christians that were suffering in a way that we've never experienced here in the United States, at, late, at least not yet, Peter says, hey, I know this is a part of your trial, but submit to the government. Because you see, when we try to run from our trials, we actually end up hindering the work of God in our lives. And we end up hindering the work that God wants to do through our lives in the world. And I want you to note this. The church of Jesus Christ has always grown in times of trial. The church of Jesus Christ throughout history has always grown in times of persecution. So Peter tells us here, submit to the government. That's the principle. Now now, now let's talk about the purpose. As we talk about the purpose, there's both an inward and an outward focus. Let's start with the inward focus. There's two aspects. The first we see in verse 13, he says, therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. That's the first aspect, for the Lord's sake. In other words, you do it to honor God. And God is honored when his earthly representatives are seen as stabilizers in society. So the first aspect is it honors God. It glorifies God. The second aspect of this inward focus is found in verse 15 when he says, and this is the will of God. You know, there's very few places in the New Testament that tells us, and this is the will of God. In 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, it says, and this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you sanctify yourself and you, you know, stay away from sin and lust and that type of thing. Well, here's another place. This is the will of God, that you submit to the government. And isn't this maybe the highest reason, the greatest reason to do this is because this is what God has said to us? Remember what Jesus said? He says that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So this inward reason really centers around the very way that Jesus lived his life, that he was concerned about the will of God. He was concerned about the glory of God. But also we see there's an outward focus as well. And we see that in verse 15 when he says that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. What's the outward focus? It's our witness to the world. It's the impact that this is going to have on people that don't know Jesus. You know what? People are always looking at you and I, and they're searching, looking for reasons that they can find as an excuse of why they're not going to follow God, why they're not going to believe in Jesus. And they love to see Christians who are doing the wrong thing so they can say, see, I'm not going to follow your God. But... One of the best witnesses that we can have is in being good citizens. Because the way people often view God is by looking at his representatives. I love what the author Paul Tripp said. He says one of the greatest, if not the greatest apologetic for the gospel of Jesus Christ is a good life. It's a righteous life. And so a good Christian should also be a good citizen. So those are the, we see there the purpose the will of God, the glory of God, the witness of us in the church. Now let's talk about the particulars. Is there ever a time when we are not 
to submit. When civil disobedience is in order and the answer is yes. And I want to look at this both personally and corporately. In other words, I want to look at this as it relates to you as an individual follower of Jesus Christ. But I also want to talk about it in the realm of how it relates to us corporately as a church. And I want to bring it into the realm this past year that we've been living in and just kind of give you a little bit of behind the scenes look of what we were praying about, what we were seeking, how God was leading us as it related to how we should function as a church during the pandemic. But first of all, let's talk about this personally. Is there ever a time when you are not to submit? And the answer is yes, if anyone is ever asking you to do something that goes against Scripture. You shouldn't submit to that. So, for example, you have Daniel. They're in Babylon. And he's told, here's a law. You can't pray to anybody but the king for the next 21 days or something like that. And Daniel says, I'm not doing that. Daniel had his routine. He had his convictions that he would pray three times a day. He'd get on his knees, face Jerusalem, open up the windows, and he would pray. He was going to obey God and not man. Or take Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're told that they have to bow down. Everybody in the kingdom has to bow down. When the music sounds, they're going to bow down to the statue that Nebuchadnezzar set up. And they said, we're not bowing. We we only bow to God. We're not bowing to this statue. And they were told, if you don't bow, you're going to get thrown into the fiery furnace. And what did they say? They told the king, hey, look, king, all I know is this. We're not bowing, and our God is going to deliver us one way or another. And he delivered, God delivered them in a miraculous way. It's such an amazing story where we see that Nebuchadnezzar looks in the fire after they've been thrown in, and he says, didn't we throw three in there? I see four, and the fourth is like the Son of Man. It was Jesus. And Jesus is always with us in the midst of the fire. You take the midwives there in the book of Exodus. Pharaoh told them to kill all the Hebrew babies. And they said, we're not going to do that. Sorry, we've got to honor God. We can't kill these babies. Or even take the first century Christians that Peter's writing to here. In first century Rome, it was the Roman law that you had to declare that Caesar was Lord. And these Christians were like, we we can't do that. There's only one Lord, and his name is Jesus. And so because of that, they were persecuted. They were fed to the lions. They, They were killed in an incredible way. And so individually, personally, when somebody's calling you to do something that goes against Scripture, you don't have to submit to that. We'll get to this in a couple of weeks, but for those of you who are married, we've actually had this happen. You have a wife who's married to a guy who's not walking with the Lord or doesn't know the Lord, and he says, hey, I want you to watch pornography with me. Does she have to submit to that? No, she shouldn't. It's immorality. We're to flee. We're abstain from sexual immorality. Or husband who says, hey, I don't want you reading that Bible sorry, I'm not going to submit to that. Or I don't want you going to church and hanging around with those Christians. Sorry, I'm not going to submit to that. So this is the first thing that we know, is we are not called to submit when submission goes against the Word of God. But what about for us as a church corporately? I think there's three areas where we as a church are not called to submit. The first is just like for the individual. 
when the government or anybody else is telling us to do something that goes against the word of God, we're not going to do that. Remember when the apostles in Acts chapter 4, they were arrested, Peter and John. And they beat them and they warned them. They said to them as they let him go, we're going to let you go, but we don't want you going around and talking about that Jesus guy anymore. And remember what they said? They said, sorry, we can't do that. And we will obey God and not men. So anytime the government tells us to do something that goes against Scripture, we, we don't have to respond to that as a congregation of believers. Secondly is when the government steps over its God-given jurisdiction. Notice Peter describes the role of government in verse 14, that it's to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Paul said a similar thing in Romans 13. He says, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. In other words, rulers are supposed to punish those who are, or excuse me, are not supposed to punish those who are doing good, but those who are doing bad. And God has established three institutions within human society. This is a principle that we find in Scripture. God has laid out these three institutions, the family, the state, and the church. And each institution has a sphere of authority with jurisdictional limits that need to be respected. In other words, here's an example. A father's authority is limited to his own family. A church's authority, which is delegated to them by God in the word of God, is limited to the church, and the government's authority is limited to the the, the government and serving and protecting their citizens. And in the biblical framework, it limits the authority of each institution to its specific jurisdiction. So the church doesn't have the right to meddle in the affairs of individual families and ignore parental authority. And parents don't have the authority to manage civil matters in a way that is circumventing the government. That's what we call vigilante justice. You'll get put in jail for that. And the government does not have the right to interfere in the affairs of the church in a way that undermines the Bible or the authority that God has given to the church. So when the government, for instance, in Canada says to the church, tells pastors, it's now against the law for you to teach in your churches that homosexuality is a sin. If you do that, we're going to put you in prison. Well, the church has to take a stand and say, sorry, we have a mission and mandate from God to teach the Bible. And so we're going to call homosexuality a sin in the same way that we call any sexual immorality a sin, in the same way that we call adultery a sin. We have to stand on the word of God. And you know what's happening right now or has been happening in Canada for quite some time is probably going to be happening here in the not-too-distant future. It will be against the law for pastors like myself to stand up and teach what the Bible says about things like that. And so when I get put in jail, you have to promise to come and visit me, okay? (laughs) Because I will be standing on the truth. 
So we're not called to submit to the government when they ask us to do things that go against the word of God or when the government steps over its God-given jurisdiction. And then the third reason is when the government is asking us to do things that hinder our God-given mission to the world. You see, God has given the church a mission in the world. The calling of the church is to go into all the world and make disciples. Our mission is to reach the lost, to make disciples of believers. So, for instance, in 1989... A group of people from our church, a small band of us, went over to what was then Yugoslavia, right after the fall of communism. And we went there, we were asked to come there to preach the gospel. And so we went out one night in the town square of the city called Subotica, and we were told, you can't go out there and talk about Jesus, you'll get arrested. And we replied, that's why we're here, not to get arrested, but to talk about Jesus. So we're going to do that. And we went out. We took the risk. We run the risk of doing that. And people got saved. And several churches have been planted because of that trip that still exist to this very day. But that was our mission. In China today, there are state-run churches that don't teach the Bible. So Christians in China, they meet illegally. They go against the government. They meet illegally in homes, in warehouses, in buildings to fulfill their calling to make disciples. And it's not a political issue. It's a missional issue. It's about, hey, this is what God has called us to. It's the very same reason why Christians have been smuggling Bibles into closed countries for decades Because it's part of our calling as Christ followers. In fact, George Bryson, sitting right over here in about row five, he used to do that with Brother Andrew, smuggling Bibles into different countries. Why? Going against against the law, it's against the government, but it goes with our mandate, our mission that God says, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And we have a calling, a mission from the Lord to care for the needy. It's one of the reasons why Christians in Germany went against the government. They disobeyed and hid Jewish people during the reign of Hitler. They printed illegal food ration cards to get more food to care for those that they were hiding. And it was against the law. But it was a risk, a risk of getting put into concentration camps. But they took that risk because it was part of their mission to care for the needy and the oppressed. It's the same reason that Christians smuggled slaves out of the South in the Underground Railroad. You see, we have a God-ordained mission to care for the needy, to care for the oppressed, to go into the world and make disciples. And you know what? This, this principle, this idea of caring for the needy, the oppressed, reaching out to those who are in need, is really a principle that we see in the life of Jesus. And it's this principle that Jesus really was, was led by in the way that he conducted himself is that human need always supersedes religious law. 
Human need always supersedes religious law. It's why he was constantly breaking the Sabbath. The Sabbath law said that you could do no work on the Sabbath, and they, the religious leaders looked at healing someone was, was doing work, and you could literally get arrested, put in prison, and even killed for breaking that law. But Jesus knew why he had come. He knew why he was there. He knew what his mission was. He knew that that law was wrong, that it was ridiculous, that it wasn't what God said, that it didn't make sense. So he was constantly breaking their view of what the Sabbath meant by healing people on the Sabbath because he lived by this principle that human need always supersedes religious law. And all of us, we would do the same. I mean, think about it in this way. You're driving by a public pool one day and there's a fence around it. And on the fence, there's a sign that says, no trespassing. Violators will be prosecuted. And you look and you see, although the pool is closed, there's a young boy in the pool and he's struggling. He's drowning. He's crying out, Help, help! What are you going to do? Are you going to say, Too bad. So sad. (laughs) He broke the law. He doesn't belong there. No, none of you are going to do that. You're going to stop your car. You're going to jump the fence. You're going to jump into the pool. You're going to trespass in order to save the kid. Because human need always supersedes the law. That's why the midwives hid the babies in Egypt. It's why the the German Christians hid the Jews. So this idea of human need always supersedes religious law or even civic law well this became our struggle in 2020 as a church you see when the pandemic first started last march there were a lot of unknowns what is this how deadly is it going to be the government said we need to lock down the entire world and try to get a handle on this to protect people and when the lockdown began, it was supposed to be a short-term stopgap measure with the goal of flattening the curve, meaning they wanted to slow the rate of infection to ensure that our hospitals were not overwhelmed. And when that was put out, we as a church gladly yielded to that. We moved all of our services online, and our heart was, man, we want to help, not hinder. We're here to care for people because Jesus cares for people. But we did keep our church office open during the week. And we did that because we wanted to be here to care for people who were hurting. You see, we felt that the church is an essential part of the community and that we have a mission, a mandated mission given to us by God to be available and to care for the hurting. And so we told everybody on our staff, if anyone, if any of you are at risk or if any of you have someone in your home who is at risk, you must stay home. And then we gave the rest of our staff the choice to be here or to work from home. And this is what we felt. We have 30,000 square feet of building space here. And we have about 25 full and part-time people on staff. So we have plenty of room here to social distance. We can take 1,000 square feet each and spread ourselves out and, and work. 
We sanitized regularly, we wore masks, we kept our distance, and we met with people that came in in open spaces, but we felt like, hey, this is part of our mission, we need to be here. And we ministered to a lot of people during that time. During that time, we embarked on a phone calling campaign to call all 2,500 people in our database just to check up on them, see how they're doing, to see how they're doing spiritually, emotionally, how they're doing physically. I think we actually did that twice. If you did not get a call, that means you're not in our database and you can tell them at the front office that you want to be in our database and they'll make sure and get you on our database. Now, as March, April, and May progressed during that time, there were two things that were becoming very, very apparent to us. Number one was this, that this isolation was taking its toll on people in our community and people in our church. We met with the Vista Sheriff who told us that domestic violence in Vista during that time had risen by 75%. Depression, suicide, was happening in people's lives. And so we felt like, hey, we got to be here. There's people hurting. But it wasn't just people in the community. We also saw that people in our church family were hurting as well. People that were falling back into drug and alcohol abuse. Marriages that were struggling. And it was heartbreaking. Now, I will say this. There were those in our body, our church family, maybe some of you, who weathered the storm quite well. Their relationship with Jesus was strong. Their devotional life was strong. Their friendship connection was strong. Their emotional well-being was strong. And it wasn't that difficult for quite a few. But there were many others that were struggling, that were wrestling, that were really, really having a hard time, both new believers and those who have been walking with the Lord for a very, very long time. And so it became very, very clear to us that we cannot, this is the key, our mission, this is where we stood, we cannot effectively minister to people and disciple people and care for people online only. We couldn't do that. Some churches maybe were able to do that really, really well. Maybe they had the network set up to be able, that wasn't us. And so for us, it was if we are going to fulfill our mission, we need to find a way to meet in person. And we need to do it as quickly as we can. So May 31st, we opened up outside and started doing our services outside. We believe what the Bible says, that we're not to forsake the assembling together as is the manner of some, but we're to stir up one another to love and good works. And, and we saw, I mean, just people coming to, coming to the service in tears because they so needed that connection of the body of Christ. So when it comes to the particulars, we are to submit except when the law violates God's word or when the government oversteps its jurisdiction, or when it hinders our God-ordained mission that is given to us in Scripture. Now let's finally look at the practice. Verse 17. He says, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. Here we have a fourfold guideline that begins with honoring all people. What does that mean? That means that we live in a way that is respectful of everyone else. 
respectful of their convictions. It means I'm not going to try to force my conviction on you. I'm going to be respectful of your convictions. I'm going to treat you as a person that God loves so much that he sent his only begotten son to come and die on a cross to pay the price for your sins. Honoring people is honoring them and realizing that every single human being is a person who has been made in the image of God and is loved by God. And you know what? Honor is often the first step toward being able to share Jesus with them. Jesus was so great at this. He honored people. It's why it says in the Bible that sinners enjoyed being around him because he showed them honor. He showed them respect. So that's the first thing. The second thing is to love the brotherhood. So we're especially to show love to our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a step higher than showing honor. This, this step of showing love. Remember Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 13. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. It thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. You could say this. Love gives the benefit of the doubt. Love hopes for the best. And love makes sacrifices. So we looked at, okay, what does it mean for us right now in this COVID environment that we're living in? What does it mean for us to show love to our brothers and sisters? What does it, what does it mean for us to show love to, to those who are just begging us? Can we please meet together? Well, we'll do that. Let's do that. Let's take out 200 chairs in our sanctuary. Let's space our rows apart to create distancing. You know, it's interesting, with all the people coming to our services right now, it's about half the amount of people that were coming pre-COVID, that are attending Calvary Vista right now. We could literally, if we put all the chairs back in here, we could do one service. But instead of doing one, we're doing three, so that we can space out, so that we can create an environment that hopefully people can feel safe in. So first service, there's about 300 empty chairs during first service. Second service, there's probably about 180 empty chairs in right now. Third service is a little bit less than that. But that was our heart. Let's, let's try to create as many situations where we can allow people to come to fulfill our mission, to make disciples, to care for people, to allow the body to be able to come together. So let's... Set up a place outside where people can watch on a screen that is way too small. I will admit it, for those of you who are outside, uh, we're working on that. Let's do our best to try to make our, our online services as great as they possibly can be for those who want to watch online. You know what the easiest thing would have been for us to do? And I don't, I don't say this with any disrespect for anybody else. The easiest thing for us would have been to just do everything online. That would have been easy. We do one take. We do it on Thursday. I'd sit in, my, in bed and watch myself in my pajamas, <laughs> which was really weird, I got to tell you. Like, oh, I can't believe I just said that, you know? Um, and my wife would say, I can't believe you just said that either, you know? <laughs> We started watching somebody else. Um, 
So we're to honor all people. We're to love the church. Number three, we're to fear God. What does that mean? Always remembering that God is the one that we're representing and always remembering God is the one that we are going to answer to. And that's a very, very heavy thing, especially as a church, that we take that seriously. And then finally, number four, honor the king. What does that mean? It means this. We respect the office. We give honor to the office even when you can't respect the person. You honor and respect the laws of the office unless they're contradicting the word of God, contradicting the mission that he's called us to, or overstepping jurisdiction. And then the final thing we need to consider then is, well, what about our witness? That's what Jesus was concerned about. And I'll tell you this, throughout this past year, our city has been aware of everything that we have been doing. And they have been very, very supportive. They know that we're trying to take, you know, measures to be safe in everything that we're doing, and they've been supportive. We've had no complaints from our community whatsoever. And anybody who has taken the time to come and see what's happening has only given us praise. And that's important. We want to have a good witness as individuals and as a church. And so I leave you with this. It all comes back to this. It all starts with this. In this realm of submission is, I'm first submitted to Jesus, which means I'm going to be submitted to his word. That I'm not going to take what somebody else is saying, but I'm going to take and I want to filter that through what does the Bible say, and that is how I'm going to live my life and conduct myself in the realm of how it relates to Submitting and living in a fallen world with a fallen government. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word today. We thank you, God, for just how relevant it is for the day and age that we are living in. I thank you, God, for your grace to be able to communicate this in a way that hopefully catches your heart and it's clear an understanding of what we have been called to as a church and what we are called to as individuals. And so, Lord, we give you our, our hearts today. I thank you for every single person in this room and everybody watching online. I pray, and everybody out in the courtyard, I pray, God, just blessing upon them today and help us as we continue to navigate our way in a world where we are living waiting for a kingdom that is to come, living in service to a king who resides in our heart, but living in a kingdom around us that is fallen, that is full of darkness, where you've called us to shine as lights. And we ask these things today in Jesus' name. Amen.